First, here's some conference announcements before we get into this week's episode. Strange Loop is sold out, but a number of surrounding events still have tickets available. UmConf is taking place on September 15th, and tickets and information can be found at elm-conf.us. RacketCon is on September 18th, and tickets and information can be found at con.racket-lane.org. PWLConf2016 is the first full-day pay-per-view love conference, co-located with the pre-conference events at Strange Loop in St. Louis, Missouri on September 15th. PWLConf will build upon, and further, unique experiences at the traditional pay-per-view love chapter events provide. The conference intends to bring academia and industry within reach of one another, hoping to foster strong collaboration and mutual appreciation across respective fields. Tickets to PWL come for $40 with an optional donation and free if you're a student or recipient of a Strange Loop Opportunity Grant. Keep an eye out for updates on pwlconf.org as speakers are still being confirmed. Lambda World will be taking place September 30th and October 1st of 2016. Lambda World is the longest functional programming conference in Spain and Portugal and one of the biggest in Europe. They expect more than 350 attendees to gather together in their awesome venue, an old tobacco factory in Cadiz downtown. The focus of Lambda World is to bring up together developers around functional programming, no matter which language they use it for. Visit www.lambda.world to sign up for tickets, CFP info, and to find out more. The 2016 edition of Scala.io is coming up. This year's edition will take place in Lyon, France on 27th and 28th of October. Scala.io is a non-profit, community-driven conference with a strong sharing spirit. With five different tracks, any functional geek will find something interesting, from beginner to advanced user. General functional programming subjects and other languages will be present as well. Regular tickets are still available for 100 euros. Visit Scala.io for more information and to register. CodeMesh is coming up again, taking place the 3rd and 4th of November, with tutorials on the 2nd of November. Visit CodeMesh.io to register and get a 10% discount on the conference when you use the code FUNCTIONALGEEKERY10. Most of the speakers have been announced, and this year's lineup looks really solid, so do check it out. ScalaWave is coming up on the 25th and 26th of November in Donks, Poland. With keynote speaker Roland Kuhn, one day of workshops, and three presentation packages, ScalaWave is created to build the network of Scala enthusiasts and experts in the area of the Baltic Sea region and beyond. Visit www.scalawave.io to find out more and to sign up for newsletter updates. Destination Code, a new unconference starting in Utah, is having its inaugural event this December. The UnConf brings energetic and seasoned mentors to the mountain village of Summer Powder Mountain for sessions and workshops worked into the day between ski sessions, farms and table meals, and inspiring getaway. Visit www.destination.codes to find out more. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I'll be happy to announce them. And as I've had a number of people inquire in the past, after a number of months of working to resolve issues around the switch to using only HTTPS, Functional Geekery is back in iTunes. And lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and or review on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening, and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm Rose Proctor, and this week with us we have Morton Kronberg. Morton, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Well, I guess I'm some sort of one-trick pony because I've been uh, using this programming language called APL since 1979, and I'm still going to claim that 
I've been a functional programmer or gradually moving into functional programming ever since the beginning of that time. Although the concept only really became known to myself maybe 15, 20 years ago. It's only that time that I've been aware of the concept. Back in 1979, when I was a kid of about 17 years old, my dad was moving out of an apartment and two Canadians moved in. And I was talking to them as they were moving their furniture into the apartment. And we were talking about what we were doing. I was at high school. I just learned some 6502 assembler and some basic. And they said, ah, well, we're here to set up a branch office of the Canadian company, IP Sharp Associates, which sells APL timesharing. Why don't you come down to our office and we'll show you what we're doing? And they just typed this one line of of code, uh, one, two, three, plus four, five, six, and hit enter, and the computer responded five, seven, nine. And at that point, it became clear to me that this was obviously the only sensible way to do programming, and that scalar loopy languages like BASIC would soon be history. The IBM 5100, which I think is seen as the precursor to the IBM PC, was just becoming available at that time. And it had a switch on the front where at boot time you selected between APL and BASIC. But unfortunately, when Bill Gates was trying to decide what programming language Microsoft was going to put on the 5150, which is the machine that became known as the IBM PC, well, he flirted with APL for a while. I think he actually wrote an, an APL interpreter, but eventually he decided that BASIC was going to have the broader market appeal. And I've been sort of waiting for APL to dominate the world for these 35 years, slowly coming to the realization that it isn't, it isn't going to happen. However, the programs that I was writing at the time, I would claim were functional in style. Because APL being an array language, as we just heard, one, two, three, plus four, five, six, map is implicit. The mapping of the function plus to each item in an array is the default behavior for the vast majority of APL primitive. And good APL code contains no loops. We've had reduction as a feature of the language ever since the first implementation in 1966. So good APL code contains no loops and it shape, rank, and if you can, the final piece of art is to make it type invariant as well, which of course may be something that many functional programmers might not see as an advantage. And that was one of the reasons I wanted to get you on with APL was that someone recommended it and from what little APL I had seen, as soon as they said it, I kind of said, okay, I think I see how that's functional because... It's a lot about the transformations of arrays and matrices, and it leads you towards the more pure mathy style, where you're actually taking an input, doing some sort of transformation, and getting something else out of it. Because the few examples I had seen were the Conway's Game of Life in APL, in like two lines of APL. Yeah. A couple of other stuff from Iverson's A Programming Language book. So very minimal, but very, still very foreign at this point. So it seemed familiar with some of those fundamental principles, even though you might not think of it when you first think functional programming languages. No, and of course, these, these ideas were all being developed at around the same time. 
in the 50s and 60s. And I think functional programming going back to, to Lambda calculus, of course. I think a lot of the same kind of thinking was going on, but ended up in different paradigms. People were trying to find ways to model complex systems and ended up with object-oriented programming on the one side. And then I think functional programming and APL in particular, perhaps, of all the paradigms really rooted in mathematical notation. So Kenneth Iverson, who wrote the book on APL in 1966, was really, uh, he was searching for better ways to teach mathematics. So he'd learned uh, mathematics fairly late in life. He went to the Army, to the Air Force first. And then he learned math at a, a relatively um, older age, perhaps, than, than people usually do. And that allowed him to get, I think, quite frustrated with the variety of different notation that were used in classical mathematics. So he was really looking for a way to describe mathematics in particular, working with arrays. And he was, he says in his, uh, you know, he did this work in 62. The first APL interpreter was built in 1966. We have the 50th anniversary coming up uh, in a couple of months. He said that in his Turing Award speech in 1979, when he was trying to explain what had been his primary motivation, he says the important characteristics of a notation are the ease of expressing constructs arising in problems, suggestivity, the ability to subordinate detail, economy, and the amenability to formal proofs. And those all sound to me very much like the, the kind of things functional programmers would use to describe the, um, the reasons why they enjoy functional programming and find that it, uh, it's useful to them, helps them think. And so you get this first experience with seeing the one, two, three plus four, five, six that gave you the five, seven, nine. Do you remember at that time you said, oh, yeah, this is how you should write things? What was that that appealed to you specifically, if you can remember it, or just that general feeling? Because cause I can see that myself and see, I can kind of see where it gets it, but it's not like one of those aha moments for me. Do you remember what that feeling of aha was? Well, the feeling of aha was just the incredible direct statement of what you wanted to do, right? You had two lists of numbers and you wanted to add them together and you did that by juxtaposing, you know, putting a plus in between them. It's like, how else would you want to do it? And, you know, I'd been, I'd been writing 6502 Z80 assembler, or not even assembler, machine code and then some basic at the time. And the machinery required to write programs was just, you know, astounding compared to to what I could do in APL. So it just seemed like I could I could do programming in one-tenth or less of the time. And of course, there was an interactive debugger which came with this, uh, which was quite unlike anything I'd really seen at the time. In fact, in APL, sort of the line between the writing a program and debugging it is very, very blurred. APL tends to be used interactively to sort of do data, not just data mining. So you have this interactive language where you can very, very quickly search for things in arrays and perform experimental calculations on them and get immediate uh, results. But you're actually mining the algorithms as you go because you're trying different mathematics-like expressions. 
and you're immediately getting the results. And the way a lot of people write APL codes is they'll sit there in the REPL and they'll type expressions and then they'll sort of reap the expressions one by one and copy paste them into the function that they're building. So they'll be sort of doing little things that are like sometimes mathematical proofs. They'll write an expression and they'll write a variation of the expression that proves its correctness. And then they'll move it into the source code uh, as they go. And that just appealed to me and you know appeals to a fair number of people. But as I said, typically people who don't have a software engineering background, mostly people who need to use a computer to solve problems, but whose real expertise in some other typically fairly mathematical domain like uh, actuarial science, chemistry, finance, and so on. And I ask because you were exposed to APL first, as opposed to where I'm coming from, which was the basic and Pascal and Java and C and that lineage through the education and history growing up. And where APL seems impressive that it can do all this stuff, it's still kind of this foreign beast because it's so different than the way that, again, as a software developer, software engineering style mindset is taught, that's not the path that leads us down. It is a different path. And so while that power seems there, it doesn't seem one of those necessarily, oh, yeah, that makes logical sense. It's one of those is like. No, no, it doesn't. And of course, this has been a, a surprise to me and a disappointment over these 35 years. You know, I was thinking this thing was going to, you know, everybody would instantly see that this was obviously the right way to do things. But clearly, there are people who really enjoy this very abstract way of looking at expressing computations. And it was my impression, in fact, that a lot of the people who are attracted to functional programming are, in fact, motivated by the same kind of feeling. Certainly, listening to people speak at the functional conference in Bangalore last time I was there, people were talking about the difficulty of selling functional programming into their IT department. And it was at a very similar type of reservation that people had about the very abstract mathematical nature of programming, doing functional programming. And I would guess that you get a lot of the questions, that's great, that's like math, but how are you supposed to do anything real in it? But probably even more if it's, well, how is every, if everything's just an array or in a matrix, how am I supposed to solve these problems? As far as relinquishing the doubts of someone coming in and saying, is this really a real language? And as you were describing some of the people who use it, it almost seems used in the same way that Excel is used as one of those common programming languages that nobody considers themselves a programmer uses, but is able to get a bunch of stuff done. Is that something you've found coming from the difference between the people who are attracted to APL versus the people that are coming in and trying to say, well, yeah, but how would I actually do anything from this when I'm used to looping through things and doing things very imperatively or at a machine level? Yeah, I mean, there's certainly, of course, the people we see as users of APL are a subset of this population, but clearly they are people who have a problem to solve rather than people who see the writing of programs as their skill. So their motivation is quite different. And, you know, they have this data, which could be in an Excel spreadsheet, or it could be in some large array or collection of arrays in an APL workspace, as we call it. 
And they're trying to do things to it. So typically, they have some kind of model that they're trying to construct, and they're doing mutation of it. And they're not able to construct sort of that full chain of events that would allow you to efficiently express this in a completely immutable flow of data. So they need to go around and little iterations, make changes to the data, and write programs which sort of flip in and out of functional mathematical view and perhaps a much more very pragmatic data-oriented view of what they're trying to achieve. I don't know if that makes any sense at all. I think that makes sense to me, at least, because that's one of those arguments that you hear a lot with the functional programming side, too, where this is very abstract. You're just doing data, but how do you deal with real problems? And it's realizing that solving that problem and having that data transformation is really what it gets to is I've got some data somewhere, but I got to get it in another form. And that's really what the problem is, not telling the computer how to do it. Exactly. I mean, the APLers want to tell the computer, you know, they want to say what they need done and not how to do it. And so you said you've been doing this since that time and APL has been your language of choice and what you've been focusing on. And in the pre-call, you mentioned someone said, hey, you've been doing this for so many years and you're still smiling. Yeah. What specifically about APL gives you that warm, fuzzy feeling that it's been since that time you first exposed to it and you're still holding on to it and smiling? Yeah, that's a good question because, of course, I learned APL when I I was 17. And as a result, I was a... a serial failure at a number of different universities because I had a paid job doing programming. So I'm not one of these subject matter experts. I never I never learned any subject. But back in those days, APL consulting on the mainframe was uh, a skill, you know, a very marketable skill. And the fascinating thing about APL was working with all these subject matter experts and understanding just enough of their problem to be able to guide them in essentially building their own DSL. So, you know, APL is in some ways more agile than extreme programming, which the way I understand it anyway, essentially a collection of methodologies for reducing the amount of communication and the communication errors that occur when the user is communicating requirement. With APL, you typically have the users themselves writing a large part, or certainly the, the, the business part of the application in APL. And the fascinating thing for me has been to meet all these amazing people solving problems in different fields, and then being able to apply just a little bit more of, of software engineering knowledge to help them get off the ground with a little bit of infrastructure around their DSL and then get them to a point where essentially they could build marketable applications with an absolute minimum of fuss, if you like, and feel that they remained in control of this process. That, I think, for me has been the really fascinating part of these 35 years is getting to meet these people, because our users are all people essentially who had some form of transformational idea within the industry that they were in, and managed to very quickly build a prototype and get it to market. Maybe just one or two people in a garage, which I guess is fairly typical for 
you know, a lot of early software engineering, but in this case, it, it's been people who are actually subject matter experts and with a minimum of software engineering skill required to get products out to market. And then the interesting thing about APL is because it's array oriented, but there are no loops, it's interpreted, but because it's array oriented and has no loops, it can still be extremely efficient on large data sets. So these people have been able to put products into the market which scaled very well. Typically, APL applications are competitive on their scalability, even though large parts of the code have been written by people who don't have software engineering as the primary skill, as the secondary or maybe even a, a tertiary skill that's been there. And so when you sit with these people and guide them into formalizing their thoughts, creating a DSL in APL and doing some of this stuff, there are these artificial boundaries of I'm a web developer, I'm a backend developer, I'm a service developer, I'm a script kitty, script junkie, I do all this stuff. What does the actual software of APL, are people just creating a bunch of repositories of these DSLs in their workbooks and executing them? Do these come down into compiled programs that people just run like any other program that they might be running? What do some of these APL programs that you help these subject matter experts build, what do they kind of look like when they're building up the software set? There's a variety of different types of solutions. A lot of people will just be, you know, one or two people in a large organization. So they'll write some functional mathematical code. And then they might just decide to use Excel as the front end. So they might have data input happening, happening in Excel and then either read the Excel files from APL or using COM interactively connect to Excel, or in fact, write APL assemblies, either as historically COM servers these days, maybe .NET plugins or web services that can be called from other languages. APL was really very successful on the mainframe when the demands of creating user interface were quite simple. If you think back in you know, a line-oriented applications on the mainframe, gone. When GUI came into existence in the 90s, it became much more challenging for the subject matter expert type of programmer to really build a complete application. So there were a number of large APL applications that had reached some form of maturity by that time. And the companies had grown so that they hired, typically hired a team of C-sharp or Java programmers, JavaScript programmers to write front ends and then kept the, the computational end in APL. These days, with the emergence of standards like web services and the Microsoft.NET framework has been very useful to us because the bulk of the users are in the financial community where Microsoft Windows has been the dominant platform. The .NET framework is really very language agnostic and it's been possible to the right mechanisms for saving APL computational engines as .NET assemblies that people writing in Sharp, for example, could just tap straight into get autocomplete. But a lot of people even today just sit there and use APL as a pocket calculator. They may have written. APL syntax is extremely simple in that functions are either prefix or infix, and that's it. And it applies to user-defined functions as well as the primitive function in the language. 
So, you know, no stacking up of argument with parentheses, semicolon, and so on. But this actually, in combination with our higher order functions, which we call operators, which take one or two of the functions as an operand, allows people to build very human readable style DSL. And often they'll just sit there using REPL typing expressions in this language or toolkit that they've built themselves without really any UI. They might at the end of a computation export it with an Excel spreadsheet or something like that. So, you know, there's a lot of different ways to do this. Suppose there's a trend these days in terms of building more of user interface in other tools. And that is helpful because it seems very powerful. But for someone who hasn't been familiar with APL, it's one of those questions of, if I've looked at it and I've seen the expressiveness and can get past the unfamiliarity at this point from someone who doesn't know it, mm-hmm. it's how do how would I go about starting to take advantage of it? And it seems like there is a wide variety of ways that once you learn it, you can use it in many other ways. And it's not just a very specific, but very powerful as well kind of tool. It's a pretty general purpose programming language as well, as long as you can represent things mathematically. Yeah. I mean, I don't think today, if you were trying to build a web shop, say, or some web-based application where the user interface was perhaps the most important part of the application, I don't think I would recommend APL for that job. We do have tools to do that, that somebody who was familiar with APL would find good, but they don't compete with professional web creation tools or mobile app creation tools. But as soon as the application has a piece which involves some form of analytics, reading, crunching data, APL can be a very useful tool for that. But unless you were a subject matter expert, you would probably want to combine APL with other tools, build web services and so on in APL. And that's kind of where I was trying to find that spot. It didn't necessarily sound like the web front end or some of this other stuff, but it sounded like one of the tools that you would have maybe a couple of specific services for doing some of this stuff as data mining versus just the one-off, hey, I need you to go calculate this, and then I go create this script purely for my own speed. It sounded more broad than that, but with something where you would have this computational engine sitting somewhere, maybe on one of your servers that help process this data. Yeah. The real benefit of APL is if you're working with data that is either poorly structured or has a changing structure, you know, so that it's regularly mutating. You're collecting data from somewhere. You can't always rely on people to stick to the format. You need to quickly validate and extract information from this data and then do some form of computation on it or just discover its nature somehow. And of course, in the financial sector, the sweet spot for APL has been in the financial sector. The computations that need to be done are, of course, the things that are continuously mutating because the regulations, taxation and other regulation of the financial market keep changing. People keep inventing new financial instruments and new ways of computing risk and so on. And if either the data is changing or the computations that you need to do need to be rediscovered or reinvented regularly, 
that I think is where APL really becomes useful. And you know, sometimes you may find that uh, you use APL simply as a prototyping tool. You use it to read some data, discover fundamental things about its nature, but then you decide that you're going to deploy this using a more traditional technology that your production team is going to be able to maintain. It really depends on how comfortable your organization is with the technology and, and the degree of change that you're facing. And you were talking about the shape of the data. And then you mentioned something about being semi-type agnostic at the beginning. It was Agnostic wasn't the word you used. And I just went blank on what that was. But you're talking about... So I think what I said was a good APL expression. It's going to be shape invariant. So you can call it on a list. And it doesn't matter whether the list has one or seven or zero items. If you do a plus reduction on a list, it's going to add up the numbers no matter how long that list is. And with that, it's not just the length of the list as well, is my understanding, but it's doesn't care if it's a list, aka vector, or a fallen matrix, or even a scalar, right? It's all still kind of the same to APL when it calculates it? Well, APL only has one data type, and what people typically call a scalar is a zero-dimensional array. Right. It has no, no dimension, but it's still an array, not a different type. So the plus reduction of the scalar one would still be one, wouldn't be some kind of type error because it's still, it's still the same type. And a matrix is the same type as a list, and a 15-dimensional array is the same type. So the array elements can have, uh, APL does recognize essentially, I think, three types, one could say today, is number, so that could be starting from a one-bit integer, which some people would call a Boolean, all the way up to a complex number in most APL interpreters. So the type would just, internal type, of course, is a very wide variety of type because we try to really optimize. We will use one bit, one byte, two byte, four byte, four integers, depending on the range of the data. Which is curious, something we used to do because we had no space on the 16-bit or 8-bit computers. And today it's turning out to become a huge advantage again because memory is becoming the most expensive part of computing. But anyway, to continue the, the invariant, there's a lot of APL primitives which will work both on numbers and characters. And when you're writing a good utility function in APL, you'll try to write something which is going to work with any dimensionality or indeed type. The third type that was introduced in the 80s is another array. So any element of an array can be another array. And then recently we also added object. So you can have, in fact, in any element of an array, you can have an instance of an object. So ideally code is shape and rank and type invariant. And of course, that's an interesting discussion because when you're talking about code correctness, there's a good number of people who say that being able to declare data type helps you verify your code. And most APLers would, of course, be of the opinion that that doesn't actually help you. It makes it harder to write the code. So the number of defects is going to be higher. I think in recent times, we would say there is some evidence that you know user-defined types um, more complex types. So declaring that something is a sell date or a buy date or something like that might 
reduced logic errors. But distinguishing between integers and float is not something that I think an APL programmer would would ever see any value in. And just as you described that, that sounds like a lot of the power of APL too is that I guess it was, I want to say it was Parnas who talked about being able to have one function on one data structure or a hundred functions on the data structure and the reusability. But it also sounds like it's more about that that same function in APL can be applied regardless of the type to some extent that the goal is that it can take in whatever type and still operate on it instead of saying, well, sorry, this function is really only limited to ints and not even floats kind of thing. But that that abstraction is being able to be reused there as well. Yeah, I mean, you will get errors if you try and take the square root of a character. You'll get, we call a domain error because it's outside the domain of the function. You will get type errors. We don't allow you to do, to do anything. But for somebody who's trying to express what he thinks of as math, the introduction of type, can be helpful if you have a very complex application, but is generally seen as something that would slow you down. Yeah, and it wasn't necessarily that there are no such things as type errors, but the goal of when writing the softwares is that you can be flexible on the types that you operate on, is what it was sounding like you were implying. Yes, and there is an argument that using typing to catch runtime errors and so on is valuable, but really you need a proper test suite. And, you know, the worst errors that happen in applications are when the math is simply wrong, right? You don't get an error. It just computes the wrong number because you didn't understand the algorithm correctly or it was incorrectly communicated. There's a trade-off there between the difficulty of writing the code and the ability to sort of read what is to someone who understands the notation, very simple code with very high semantic density, right? The characters that you see on the screen in front of you are all directly related to describing the mathematical problem that's being solved. And you don't have four eaches and you don't have type declarations and other stuff, which isn't really related to the problem description. And that seems one of the other things, again, just vaguely looking at APL, is you mentioned it was a very simple syntactically language and the semantics of those things are expressed by the mathematical symbols. So instead of having, whereas a lot of languages still use add and will substitute the plus sign or the X for multiply potentially or the star for multiply depending on the language, APL essentially takes that and applies a lot more mathematical stuff because it's got things like union and intersection and therefore and because and some of these other things. And I think he said min, max, floor, ceiling. And those things that would normally be just other functions spelled out by their names, you're able to represent as a single symbol, which is what makes it semantically dense, right? Yeah. And, you know, including things like sorting and transposing data or selecting items of data, everything is pretty much done with functions that have either a right argument, they are prefix, or they are infix, and they have two arguments. And you mentioned back to Iverson, because of that, the way you write your software is the same way that you kind of write it on the whiteboard, right? If you were to write it down on a whiteboard or piece of paper, you're going through this mathematical notation that is what it comes back to if someone were to remember back into a high school, middle school, college course, wherever they took their math for some decent levels of math, 
if they can kind of vaguely remember back to that, that's kind of what their APL program would look like too, for the most part, right? Yes, indeed. Iverson's motivation when he designed the language was, in fact, to use it for teaching. And, you know, there was a period of time from 62 to 66 where he was using it in that way before IBM implemented the first interpreter. So absolutely, it, it looks like math. And that'll turn some people on and some people will enjoy it less. Or at least give them the familiarity recognizing that if you've seen this before, this is the inspiration of why these funny symbols are everywhere. And that if you can remember back, they may not be as foreign as you think they are, right? Yeah, absolutely. So I want to get in. You're working with dialogue. I just had Alex Wiener on and he said, dialogue is the APL at this point, if someone wants to use APL. And so it sounds kind of like you were also the stewards of APL at this point, since you are the primary version of it. So what is some of the stuff that APL might be looking towards in the future a little bit for people to see how APL is continuing to change and work with and continue on that might attract people that says, here's where we're going do you, if you want to be part of this. The big thing that we're working on, of course, is as I think a lot of people are, and maybe this is also one of the, you know, what's driving a lot of the interest in functional programming is, is getting a good parallel story. We have a notation which is essentially parallel. And we're working on making sure that we'll be able to compile it to run on GPUs and um, use all the processes that are your, at your disposal, both trying to do that automatically. So doing analysis of a trains of APL symbols and trying to parallelize them, but also adding language features. We've just recently added something we call futures and isolate to the language where the APL user by inserting parallel operators, can express where the parallelism is in an application because it's it turns out to be very difficult to really automatically detect that. You need help from the users. That's probably the, the most important medium-term goal that we have. We're also, I mean, when APL started back in 66, it was sort of functionally oriented, but it wasn't really formally functional. But in the 90s, Dialog's chief engineer, John Scholes, who was a big fan of Simon Peyton Jones, added a properly lexically scoped, much more purely functional dialect or form of writing functions that can be combined with the procedural and more object-oriented features of the language. So those are sort of the main thrusts that we're working on in the language. Most of the work that we do at Dialog is much more mundane stuff related to porting to new platforms, improving the algorithms that we use in the old primitive functions that we've had around for decades. And of course, interfacing to new infrastructure tools that people want to combine with APL like R or MATLAB. If people want to, I think your question was maybe where should people go to find more information about this? It was more just that you mentioned a couple of times that we are at the 50th anniversary in a couple of months of this language and that this language is still thriving. People might see it as done and say, okay, well, why do I need to use this? Aside from the fact that it's stable, but that there is still looking at a vision of where this could go and what things could be learned 
or taken advantage of in the modern era of how computers are working versus what was designed 50 years ago. And so I think your comments about making sure it's on other multiple platforms and integrating with other tool sets and tool chains and things like parallelism show that this is worth something checking out because there is a life there and slow evolution for something that is still stable and not just, we did this and we're just keeping it running kind of thing. The evolution in Dialogue APL for the last five to 10 years has probably been a higher rate, as, as high a rate of innovation as there has ever been in the history of APL. Because we've been working with people like Roger Huey, who worked with Ken Iverson on the J programming language, where APL was rationalized and enhanced with a number of functional forms, points-free forms. And we've been working to integrate some of those with the APL language, because there's no friction when you add them to APL. They all have the same kind of syntax and are very useful features. So for example, we've added something called the key operator, which is, well, we, we use the term operator for what I think most functional programmers would call a higher order function. So it's a function that can take another function as an argument. And the key operator will take a function as an argument, and then it'll take two arrays, one containing keys and another containing data. And it'll then invoke the operand function, your user-defined piece of code, once for every unique key that occurs in the key array, passing the data corresponding to that key as the argument. So it's a bit like a for each, but it's a for each, well, it's actually very similar to an SQL combine. So it executes your function for the groups defined by some key. And one thing is that you can use a construct like that with user-defined code, and then it'll be a useful tool like an SQL group by with a user-defined function. But the interesting thing about the way functions and operators work in APL is there's a very large number of idioms that can be detected. So somebody might say, well, do the plus reduction, so the sum with key. And then that's just a sum, the classical SQL, select sum of something group by something else. And you can then very highly optimize this in the interpreter. So one of the things we spend a lot of time is detecting these special cases of primitive and operator combinations and really optimizing them on different data types, on one-byte integers, two-byte integers, and so on. It's very, very easy to write an APL interpreter because the syntax is so simple, but writing a really efficient APL interpreter is something you can spend decades on. And eventually you get to something where if you're writing idiomatic APL, you can get code that will actually outrun hand-coded C because Unless the person who's writing the C code has a lot of time, they're not going to optimize it for bit booleans and single byte integers and two byte integers and four byte integers and so on. So that's another thing we, we spend a lot of time on. And I think we actually probably at Dialogue have an APL development team, which is as large as, say, IBM had or IP Sharp had in, in the, the first golden age of APL, as we like to call it, in the 80s. And we're really moving forward very fast with adding features to APL. And in our coordination from this email, because you mentioned the point-free style that you started trying to pull in from Jay, you said an example of 
creating point-free functions for things like mean, variance, and standard deviation. And I think that would be a good example. So I'll make sure to include that snippet in the show notes so people can actually start to see a little bit of APL, but also understand what you're talking about with how some of this point-free notation and being able to express the functions as just the other functions, regardless of the arguments, will come in and play with an APL style. So I think that'll be helpful to see some APL snippets and understand some of the stuff that you're folding in and how it's evolving from learning with lessons taken from J as well. Yep, thanks. That sounds like a really good idea. And when people have snippets like that, or they find them elsewhere, there's a site called tryapl.org, which is an online interactive APL session. So they could just copy paste those expressions into that and, and experiment with different arguments or tweaking how the functions work. And that gets into the next question I was going to ask you and the question you were starting to wonder if I was asking you, which was people who are interested want to at least find out more and understand some about APL, if not use it, but figure out what kind of changes in their thinking they can have. And so where do people go and how? what's the best way from your perspective of being in the APL community for a while and seeing that evolve of getting people up and running and familiarity and at least starting to be able to fold APL in, even if it's just a, I'm using this for my pocket calculator, as you said, because I've got this data set and it's going to change some of the way I think about these problems. Yeah, exactly. It's worth learning even if you don't actually use it because it may change the way you think about data. So I think that the tryapl.org site that I mentioned is a good place to start. It has some tabs you can go to that have links to probably all of the other resources that I'm going to mention. We have both a blog and a forum at Dialog, so dialog.com slash blog, where recently actually there have been quite a lot of blog entries by Roger, which contain a fair amount of APL expressions, which I think people might find entertaining. I did a Google talk about a year and a half ago. If you go to talks at Google and search for Morton Cromberg or Dialog APL, there's a talk there which talks a lot about the origins of APL and the reasons why the syntax is as it is, and some comparisons to similar constructs in more well-known functional languages. I think those are the most important things. If you want to have a look at what people are doing in APL, there's a site, video.dialogapl, which mostly contains recordings from the last four or five years of dialogue user meetings where people are talking about what they're doing with APL and, and showing stuff in action. For fun, I would go to YouTube and look up Conway's Game of Life in APL where John Scholes, who I mentioned before, is the father, really, of our functional dialect of uh, Dialog APL, shows how to solve Conway's game of life in a single line of APL, and it shows how he sort of slowly builds up the statement experimenting interactively in the session. Yeah, and that was one of the first real exposures of seeing APL was that example. And watching it the first time, I was like, huh? But after watching it a couple of times, and I still don't fully get it, but I can start to see some of those transformations of how it works. And again, one of the reasons that thinking in APL becomes novel, because that thinking can be applied to other languages and not just APL. And so that was one of the reasons why trying to find these resources and making sure that people know where to go to find it. And I believe that's on the Try APL site as well, right? I just stumbled across the tutorial there as well. There's a link to it from there. 
Oh, and yes, there's an interactive tutorial on the TriAPL site where you can run through that step by step. Yeah, that's correct. So we've covered a lot. What stuff about APL haven't we talked about that at least deserves a mention for what other stuff people should think about or is novel and start giving a tease, if nothing if nothing else, to give a tease for things for people to go out and look for on their own? There's a huge ecosystem. This is only the – you're the only second guest I've talked to about APL, so we're kind of setting a foundation for a lot of people here. What did we not manage to cover that we at least think people should have heard about? So if they go out and dig it, they know to have that association there with APL. Another site worth that I probably should have mentioned before is the British APL Association has a site called vector.org.uk which is not just for APL programmers, but for array programming languages. So, I mean, we really see the users of J and of K, which is also, I don't know whether you've heard of K, but it's like a reduced instruction set APL system that's been built on top of a very, very high performance inverted data store. So it's used for real-time trading or what they call high-frequency trading on Wall Street. And it's very much also a derivative of APL. And the APL and J and K communities see themselves as brothers. So you might also want to look at both the J software site, KV, and the Vector site for more information about how these languages are used. And I'll make sure to get those in the show notes for those other resources, as well as the resources for getting started. Oh, sorry, I I forgot to mention something really, really important, which is that uh, since the release of version 15 of Dialog APL, it's now free for non-commercial use. That used to be limited to to educational use, but for the last couple of months, anybody who wants to play with APL can just go to our website. And we're still asking you to fill in your name and address. We may change that in the future. But at the moment, we're still asking people to leave us an email address, but it's free for any form of experimentational use, as long as you're not making money directly using it. And that's good to know. And uh, I'm sure that'll help people want to pick up and play with APL more and reduce that friction for just getting their mind around it. So we're at close to the end of the time. That's why I was asking if there's anything else we missed covering. But since you brought up those other things, I think we've got that covered. So is there anything that you want to plug? You mentioned on passing the Dialog User Conference. I know there's something coming up. You've got some appearances there. There's some other stuff. So is there anything you want to plug and promote at this point? Well, there's the Dialog User Conference, which is coming up in Glasgow, October 9th to 13th. And this year, since it's the 50th anniversary of the first running APL system back in November 1966, we're doing two of the days together with the British APL Association as a celebration of 50 years of APL. So there'll be talks by a number of people, both on the implementation side, people who are involved in in implementing APL systems, the interpreters, but also a number of users who've written important APL systems through the ages. I'm also going to be at Functional Conf in Bangalore. I think that's October 14th, 15th, I'm going straight from Glasgow to Bangalore. 
I'm not sure how much they are planning to transmit live or after the conference this year, but there'll be talks there both by Roger Huey and by myself this year. And then do you have a call to action for the audience that you want them to take away from this episode? Well, you know, take a look at it. It might change the way you look at data. It might give you a way to really quickly manage to find solutions to problems, help you design software, whether you end up writing it in APL or in other languages. I think it's a, it's a tool that's worth having in your belt, or at least a set of techniques that might be useful. I think in many functional languages, you'd be able to apply APL thinking to working with data. And then you mentioned the TriAPL and the Dialog blog and the Dialog forums as places for getting started resources, but where can people find out more about you and not just APL, but where can they follow along and figure out what's going on with what in your world and what you're working on specifically? Well, being a geek, working for Dialog is pretty much all that I do. So the place, again, would be to go to the blog. There's a page there called About the CXO. I was the CTO until this spring, and then I gave that job to somebody much more qualified and moved on. I, I'm now calling myself CXO, the Chief Experience Officer, which means I'm responsible for finding out essentially whether people are happy with the features that are in the product, what they need, what new users might be needing. So about the CXO, and there's a link there to a number of talks and podcasts and so on that I've done recently. I think that would place to start. And then I'll get that added to the show notes as well. Great. I'd like to go, Dan. Thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And thank you once again, Morton, for taking your time and joining me today. I'm just breaking the ice of what I've seen of APL. And I think you've started to give me a good foundation. And as with many things, there is more and more that keeps getting added to the list to keep digging deeper and deeper on which is one of the blessings and curses of software in the modern times that there's so much out there. But thanks for at least exposing me to some of these ideas and giving me the chance to start understanding better, broader and wider world that is out there that I might not have necessarily known about before this conversation. So thanks again for giving your time. And it was great talking with you. Thank you very much for your interest. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.